Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. All of these people, I'm, I'm going to leave this, but this is a piece of evidence that there was a New Testament. These people existed. Jesus existed. A lot of this evidence says that, uh, like Pliny especially, Pliny the Younger talks about how Christians gather uh, to sing hymns about Jesus as God. This is in 112 when he's writing, Pliny the Younger. They set a day aside to have a common meal. We still have that. It's called the Mass. It's called Eucharist or Communion. Like this is back in 112 when Christians are doing this. They sing. They sang hymns to Christ as God. Says uh, Pliny, and they had a communion meal. They lived honorable, moral lives. Um, this is one small piece of the puzzle to try to show that there was a Christ, that there were people who worshipped him. There were Christians in Rome in 64. There were Christians in Rome in 55. This spread. They they they, they had belief in Jesus as as as, as divine, and they were praying to him. This stuff is just part of the evidence. They, they, yeah, they're diluted, right? And you, you can you can say anything you like, but I'm saying rationally, the evidence is saying that these people, that these external sources of enemies of Christianity, are saying, yeah, of course, he, he was alive. Now you don't need all of this, although maybe you do. Um, here are, I've got a point to make here. I guess some of this is not in your text, but I don't want you to have to. These are early Christian writings. Now, I'm going to give you the point before you get distracted by trying to write this down. If, if we take the quotes from these people, just the quotes, they, they quote the Bible. They, 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 I can tell you who quotes what if we had hours to do this. Like The very first one on my list is 95 AD, Clement of Rome. He was a friend of Paul. Paul mentions him. Um, he was... He wrote a letter to the Corinthians in, in uh, 95 A.D. And he talks about Jesus as, as divine, Jesus as resurrected from the dead. What I'm saying is, though, these people also quote what's now called the Bible, the New Testament. And they quote over 36,000 times. And the whole Bible is in these quotes except 11 miserable little verses. All of them. The whole thing is in these quotes. So if there weren't a Bible... We could probably put these quotes together, these 36,000 plus quotes from these early Christian writers. How people can say in the liberal academia that this stuff was made up later and ignore all of this evidence. These are called the church fathers. These are the leaders of the church who are writing letters to one another and, and arguments. Here, here are some of their names. The first ones especially, they're between 90 AD and 130. Clement of Rome. Uh, let me just put this down here so I can see my feet. Clement of Rome writes a letter in 95. The reason that letter, by the way, is not in the New Testament, I mean, it's legitimate. It's writing a letter to the Corinthians. This guy became the bishop of Rome. I'm pretty sure he was 
food pope or whatever. I, I may be wrong. I, it's been a while since I've looked at that list. But Clement of Rome is mentioned by uh, Clement is mentioned by Paul. The reason he's not in the scriptures is that the scripture only wanted eyewitness accounts or, or people who knew the eyewitness accounts very, very well. And Clement's letter didn't make it. They were scrupulous in who got in and who didn't. Um, and it, it was simply by agreement. Uh, it's, that, it's just the way it always was. Clement of Rome talks about, um, he was a disciple of Paul. He, he quotes from, the, from three different, different New Testaments. I won't give you who because it would take forever. All of these people do that very, very early. But my point is, it's these people from Justin Martyr to Clement of Alexandria, this list here, that quote the scriptures 36,000 times. The whole thing is in these people's writings. Now, the reason I say that is the liberal scholars and the critics of Christianity say, well, the Bible wasn't Constantine. Didn't the Romans just write the Bible in 313 or 350? What a stupid thought that is. The Romans wrote the Bible. Like, there's not a shred of evidence that Romans knew how to write a Bible about Jewish thought, all of the profound things that are on. It's complex, for Pete's sake. It's, it's world literature of a first dimension. And yet, the whole Bible is quoted before Constantine was born. Like, so he didn't make it up. You wouldn't believe the myths in this culture about how the Bible came about, how it was corrupted, how it was changed. There's eyewitnesses who wrote it. I'll make the case in a minute when I show you the dating. But these people quote the whole thing. And they're all disciples of... of there's a line from the disciples. These people up here are all disciples of the... Of, of the uh, like Polycarp and Papias are disciples of John. John would not let them be lying in, in what they're saying and they're preaching and they're teaching. And these other people are disciples of the people above. There's a direct line from Jesus that goes on down. If anybody is lying or conspiracing or changing things, uh, it would have been exposed. And by the way, there's so much Christian writing. Paul's writing in the 40s and 50s, and he sends his letters to all the churches. Do you know what it would be like to change the Scriptures, which is one of the major criticisms of skeptics? You'd have to find every single letter, every single manuscript, of which there are 14,000 of. You can't do it. It's an impossibility, it seems, at least in my opinion, and, and I'm not alone. I'm just representing Christian scholarship here. You can't change it. It's, it's written in stone in these people's letters. And by the way, the way they quote the Bible is consistent. Nobody's quoting John differently than somebody else quotes John. It's absolutely consistent. That tells us that, there's, that there was a scripture that early. These people are quoting it in the next century. And while these people are quoting the Bible... You've got Gnostics, people that the church deemed her heretical, heretics, that we worship in this culture, the, the liberal scholars, writing all kinds of myths and changing what the scriptures say. These people are quoting it, and, and then at the same time you get these heretics inventing all kinds of new texts about how Jesus was really a mystic and had secret knowledge, the Gnosticism stuff. It's unbelievable. It's, it's a... I don't want to make it sound complicated, but the story is just incredibly simple. There's a direct line from the apostles, from Jesus, right through the early church. It, whether the, I mean, the first full biblical manuscript we have is that the whole thing is about 200. But these people quoted the whole thing way before 200. So that's irrelevant. The thing existed. We don't even need the manuscript. All we need is their quotes. 
Everything is missing, by the way, except the third letter of John, just in case anybody's curious. He probably wrote it right near the end of his life, and it just didn't get in. And quite frankly, it's only a page long anyway, 11, 11 verses or whatever. Most of it, if not all of it, it's just him. There's also really early stuff that didn't make it into the Bible, but early non-biblical writings like the Shepherd of Hermes, 115, the Deashi, 120, the Epistle of Barnabas, 130. They're all quoting the Bible. They're all talking about how Jesus is divine, how he's risen from the dead. All It's, it's all there. So these are. this is saying that the Bible was not written years, if not centuries later, like some people seem to think, without any proof. These people are quoting it in the very first century. Um, Clement, about uh, right here in 95, I mean, John's probably still alive. Uh, we think John lived until, one of Jesus' disciples lived until about 120, uh, like at least to 100. So you can't, you can't be quoting these things wrongly when, when eyewitnesses are around. It just doesn't work that way. There is testimony for early scripture writing. And this is what the evidence, before I give you some of the testimony, this is, because we're winding it down, this is what I think is more accurate dates than likely you hear in, uh, in uh, Chapters Bookstore when you're reading the latest uh, liberal book. If Jesus died about 30, the story goes is that Paul was converted. Now, this guy is the Pharisee of Pharisees. His name was Saul. And his job, basically, was self-ordained. I want to go and find the Christians and kill them. Please let me do that. He was such an aggressive, influential Pharisee. He called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the Ph.D. scholar of his day. Paul was converted from killing Christians um, to becoming uh, the writer of 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament, uh, the letters, the epistles of Paul. What he did was he thought about that. He, he was converted, by the way, about, uh, by having an experience of Jesus. Um, it, it's recorded in several times. We actually know how Paul preached because, I, again, if you know this stuff, it's simple, but if these are just names to you, it's not. But Paul was accompanied by Luke. And Luke wrote one of the Gospels, but he also wrote a second part to his Gospel called the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And he records in Acts some of Paul's sermons, how he talks. And he always talks about how Jesus revealed himself to me. He talks about his conversion experience. He talks about feeling lifted to heaven. And, and it, it's a vision, but he, he talks about meeting Jesus. Now, Paul is a scholar. He's the Ph.D. of Pharisees. He's the primary student there. Everybody acknowledges his, his, his skills. He, he taught, his teacher was Gamaliel, the, the, leading, the leading teacher of the day. Paul made it his business to find out about Jesus. He went to Jerusalem and he stayed with Peter. And he, he, you know he grilled him for 14 days and nights. What he did with that is, is the most interesting part. Just stick with me here and I won't drag this away from you. He visited Peter, Jesus' number one man, like the leader after Jesus died. And what Paul did was he put some of what Peter told him into his letters that Paul wrote during the 40, from about 49 to 64. In one of those letters, Paul gives 
In fact, in almost all the letters, Paul gives these early creeds. What, what goes on in the scriptures? This is a case for its early dating. And if it's early dating, that means we're talking about eyewitnesses. We're not talking about some mythological invention later. Paul learned something from Peter about Jesus, about his earthly life and what he did. And, 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 and he, he buries these things. He, every time he writes a letter, he, he embeds a creed. He embeds information he got from, from Peter. It's not Paul's language. It's not the way he talks. You can tell he's citing a hymn, a prayer, a creed. If he got it from Peter, he got it from an eyewitness. He got it from somebody from the 30s. Like, and that's, that's exactly what happens. There are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of creeds, hymns, and prayers embedded in all of the New Testament books. All of the Gospels, most of the letters of, uh, all of the letters of Paul, and most, most of the other letters. That tells us that even if Paul was writing in 49, he's got stuff in there that goes back to 33. Like, it goes right back to Peter, or at, at least 34 or 35. What he does, like he's, he's talking about in 1 Corinthians, that's his best known, I guess, after Romans, but this is the big one. This is where he talks about the resurrection. And he just shifts right in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he shifts right into the creed. And you can just see Peter's, Peter just dictating it. He, you know, he, he died on the third day. He, he rose again from the dead. and it, it's, just, it's just basic. It's not Paul talking. You can tell that he's quoting somebody some hymn. You see it again in the letter when he, he, he uses an Aramaic word, Maranatha, Maranatha, which means, like they didn't translate it in most, most English versions, it just means the Lord comes. That was a Christian prayer. That, that we think is the earliest Christian prayer we know of. The Lord comes. The Lord will come. They probably played, the Lord has come, the Lord will come again. But Maranatha is all we have. The Lord comes. It's in 1 Corinthians 16.22, the very last words, of, almost the very last words of that letter. Paul is burying these early Aramaic sayings and prayers and hymns and creeds. I could give you 24, 25 of these things, but we haven't got time. You just need to know the point that the scriptures are full of these early references. And quite frankly, um, that gives scholars um, a lot of evidence that that they're citing people who were eyewitnesses rather than somebody who's just claiming to make all this up for whatever reason they, they seem to think. These are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What, I'm, what you're seeing here is that these things were not written centuries, centuries, centuries later. It, 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 there's so many junk books out there that just are trying to destroy this, but none of it makes any sense. One quarter of the New Testament is written by Luke. He wrote the, his own gospel, and he wrote the book of Acts, and he was with Paul, an eyewitness to all of that stuff. This is an expert here. Luke was a, was a, was a Macedonian. He's the one that's not Jewish, that's one of the writers. Um, Luke was a medical doctor. And, and he's, he's called by a lot of people one of the best historians that's ever existed. He gives you just blinding detail. Now, I'm telling you this because people are saying, isn't it all just myth? Luke gives you numbing detail, which is being proven archaeologically to, to be valid, despite a couple of centuries of people scoffing at it. See, we used to believe this stuff. It was written in the Bible. Christians didn't think they had to defend the Bible because there was no opposition, really. 
uh, in Christendom. It was just the Bible. But then we've had atheism, skepticism, liberal scholarship, and now we've got to defend all this stuff. So people are saying, well, Luke must have made all this up. And blah, uh, Well, he cites, for instance, 32 countries. He cites 54 cities with incredible detail about where the harbor is, where the hills are, where the temple is, where the marketplace is, what the officials' names are. I mean, if you can walk to Parliament Hill and say, this guy's the assistant to the Senate secretaries, you know, whatever. All of these technical names, he's on the island of Malta and he calls the leading man the leader of Malta. The skeptics just howled about that. There's no such thing as a leading man on Malta. Well, of course, we found the inscription talking about the leading man of Malta. Archaeology. There's, there's, now, here's the point. Luke knows people's, people's names. He knows their rank. He knows who was the procreator, the proconsul of this city, of that city. He knows the geography, the politics, the social history. He knows all of this. That's not how you write a myth. If you write a myth, you write stories about giant snakes swallowing elephants. This is history he's writing. And if it weren't for the miracles that he talks about, Jesus' miracles, we'd all believe it as the best history ever written. He's writing careful, technical history that archaeology is finding. People thought Pontius Pilate didn't exist. They thought that the Pool of Bathsheba didn't exist. They're finding all of this stuff. Archaeology is not going to prove the Bible is true, but it's certainly going to prove that what these people are talking about existed. It's one little piece of the evidence. And one little piece after one little piece, and all of a sudden you start finding, it looks like these people. Now, Luke is the same guy who in the book of Acts gives you all this blinding detail about everybody's life that he gives you in his gospel. And as he's telling you who's the emperor and who's the procreator and who's the king and who's his assistant and what his name is and who the high priest's son's name is and on and on and on, He's the one who tells you Jesus rose from the dead according to the testimony. It's hard to think that he's giving you all of this factual history and then lying on the most important points. Anyway, it's hard for a lot of us to think that, that, that the case is weak. The book of Acts, written by Luke. Just Let me just whip through some of this. It doesn't mention some major events. And that tells us that it must have been written before these major events. It's that simple. In 70 AD, the Romans tore down the temple in Jerusalem. Not one stone remaining on another stone. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. And in fact, the Roman wars started about 66. So from 66 to 70, the Romans were basically attacking and destroying Jerusalem. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. That's pretty good evidence that Acts was written before 66. What is mentioned in the book of Acts is that um, Festus, a Roman official, was appointed. Or it mentions Festus in the book of Acts. And we know from Roman history, independent of the scripture and the Bible, that Festus' appointment in Jerusalem was between 55 and 59. So that tells us that Acts must have been written somewhere 55 to 59. Like, it couldn't be written before that. So now we're about 25 years away from Jesus. 25 years only. But somewhere between 55, and now here, 70 we'd say, 66, it can't have been 66 because 
it would have talked about the Romans trying to destroy Jerusalem. Now, some other things happened to make it even earlier. Jesus' brother is killed in 61. James, that's not mentioned. Um, Paul is killed in 64. That's not mentioned. Peter is killed in 64, 65, and that's not mentioned. Now, you can't have your leaders of the church being killed and you're writing a book about the account of the early church and not mention that, by the way, these people are dead. They've been killed. So we know that the book of Acts is very early. We're talking 25 years from Jesus' time. That's eyewitness territory. This is not 250 years. This is eyewitness country. Now, here's how the story gets interesting. Luke wrote Acts as part two. Part one is the Gospel of Luke. So that means if Acts was written about 60 at the latest, 60 to 62 at the latest, the Gospel of Luke must have been written before 60 or 60 at the very latest, 30 years. That's eyewitness territory too. Um, Mark, Mark was written before Luke because Luke uses parts of Mark. He quotes Mark and that was what they did. You didn't have to give credit in the old days, you know, before copyright laws. If you wanted to quote somebody, you quoted somebody. So, so now we've got Mark way back early. We also, when you look at, the, at, at, at Luke's Acts of the Apostles, like I'm saying the date was about 60. I'm making a case here that the major point, that the Bible is not some mythological account that comes hundreds of years later. There's testimony upon testimony and evidence that hits you in the face if you look at it that the thing was written early. And that's the most important point to make. We're talking about eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain by lying. They wrote it what they saw. They wrote early. Luke puts in Acts. There's a difference. What I want to say now, it's not not in the writing, but this this is important too. Acts is is, uh, several chapters long, but the first 12 chapters are different. A different style. Uh, different theology, different wording. It's more Aramaic being translated into Greek than the rest. And that tells us that the first 12 chapters of Acts probably go way back to the early days of the 30s and 40s. That may be the earliest account we have. In fact, it's talking about Peter preaching in 30 AD. Um, I, I'm just, I, I can make a case, but we haven't got the time, that Acts 1 to 12, those first 12 chapters, are very, very early by the vocabulary. It's like weird little words that the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus from Nazareth. We we don't talk like that later on in the Gospels, but the book of Acts seems to be almost identical to when the apostles were living, the disciples were living. Matthew, we know from um, uh, Papias, one of his, uh, John's disciple, in 70 A.D., is saying that Matthew's gospel has already been written and that it was written in Aramaic. So that's pretty early too. And of course, uh, Matthew uses Mark just like Luke does. So Mark, again, is really early. Um, I could go on with all of these things, but what all you need to know really is that this, this, there's a good case you can make for the authenticity based on the fact that it's eyewitness accounts if we had the time, what we would do is to say, what do they have for lying? What's in, what's, why would they lie? Do they have the psycho, psychological profile of lying? Is it, would, would they be lunatics to be 
trying to invent all of this, if you think this stuff comes later, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. There's no really good argument that it comes later. All there is is skepticism about because miracles can't happen, it must have come later and somebody was writing a myth. But the eyewitness accounts say otherwise. For me, it's like when I see those ancient creeds, about three dozen creeds that come from the 30s and 40s before there was a Bible, embedded in the scriptures. They're embedded in Paul, embedded in the God. Like they're there. You can see the different writing. They're Aramaic, translated into Greek. They're Jesus' exact words. Um, It's eyewitness accounts. I don't know how this culture has missed that, but it's been an obsession to get rid of miracles and therefore you can't have a man of miracles. And so you have to say, the only way to get rid of the miracles is to say the thing is a myth. But the evidence says it's not a myth. That's the Christian justification for belief in the Bible, that it's early dating, there's external sources. The whole thing is quoted by Christians in the first century, um, whether it existed or not. It had to exist because they're quoting the entire Bible in 90, 100, 110 120. It's all being quoted. How can anybody say there's no Bible until later? How can anyone say Constantine wrote it or Constantine changed it? Just on that point alone, can you imagine how you can change 5,000 manuscripts flying all over the world? We've discovered manuscripts in India and in, and in, and in Egypt and all over the place from the early church. How can anyone conspire to change the thing? It makes no sense. It seems like the one we have is the one that was written. That's my conclusion from my study of 40 years of the evidence. Um, That doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm not alone. I'm not the only person in the world who thinks it's valid. Thank you for taking this journey with us on Justifying Beliefs. If this series has been beneficial to you, let us know your story by sharing it with us at Dr. Whitney's website. You'll find the link in the episode description. We also thank you for sharing this podcast series with others. We love hearing about the thinking that it's inspiring. We're also delighted to learn that for some, this series has become the basis for small group discussions and for others, a resource to continue to review for personal study. Be sure to visit Dr. Whitney's website as well for resources we will add to aid you in your journey of justifying beliefs as we continue on ours with you.